Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The intersection of food and religion is an area in which I've lately been taking more and more interest. These areas of interest sprung up a few years ago when, as a high school religious studies teacher, my students began asking questions during our studies in Buddhism's Eightfold Path. The students, who lived in a college town with bars everywhere, began asking questions such as, If serving alcohol can increase the suffering of someone for the profit of others, where does the Buddhist teaching of right livelihood come into play for Buddhist bartenders? Another great one relates to the Bodhisattva vows, where a Buddhist says, Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. The students would read this, and leapfrogging from their questions on right livelihood, jump to questions of right action and the Bodhisattva vows, and say, How do Buddhist cooks and chefs, who vow to save all sentient beings, deal with the ethical dilemmas of preparing and serving meat in restaurants? These questions, asked largely by sharp and thoughtful but decidedly non-vegetarian teenagers in Missouri, have stuck with me for a long time. This episode is a conversation which touches on these issues, discusses cooking styles in Buddhist monasteries, and more. I'm delighted to welcome arguably the perfect guest to discuss such matters, Chef Eric Repair. Eric Repair is chef and co-owner of La Bernardin on 7th Avenue in Manhattan's Theater District. He is the author of the autobiography, 32 Yokes, From My Mother's Table to Working the Line. He is the author of numerous cookbooks, and he is also the host of the television series Avec Eric. In 1989, Repair moved to the U.S. to work as sous chef at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. And in 1991, Repair moved to New York, where he eventually came to be chef for La Bernadette. Repair is constantly recognized as one of the top chefs in the world. However, the topic of today's conversation picks up where his autobiography left off, and we discuss how his profession and his Buddhist practice merges and how they inspire each other. As a viewer of Repair's television appearances, his series Avic Eric, and a recent reader of his autobiography, it is a privilege and pleasure to bring you this conversation on the intersection between Buddhism and the restaurant industry with one of the world's most notable chefs, Eric Repair. Eric spoke to me in the middle of his workday from the conference room at La Bernadette, and I am deeply grateful to him for taking the time to talk to me. Enjoy our conversation. Chef Eric Repair, welcome to Classical Ideas. It's great to have you here today. Thank you very much. It's my great pleasure to be with you. So it is because of the extraordinary artist Rima Fujita that we are sitting here together today. Um, Rima and I have become friends over the last few months, and she calls you her best Dharma friend. Can you tell me a little bit about your friendship with Rima and some of your Dharma adventures that you two have had together? Sure. I know Rima for a long, long time because of uh, the beauty of her art that inspires so many people, and and I was very attract, attracted to what she she paints and creates, and I have seen Rima 
many, many years ago in many occasions uh, with Tibet House and Tibet Fund and Tibetan uh, events uh, to, that support the, the community in exile or, or, or anything that supports the Tibetan community in, in, in that aspect. And, um, and then in terms of, of adventures, I think the biggest adventure that Rima and I had was to uh, do a pilgrimage together, um, following the footsteps of uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, starting in, um, in, in, in India, ending up in uh, Nepal, where he, in Lumbini, where Buddha was born. So it was not necessarily chronological, but uh, we started in Varanasi, and then we went to Bodhgaya, and from Bodhgaya we went to um, uh, Vulture Peak, where Buddha delivered the, the Sermon of um, uh, Heart Sutra. And, uh, and it was uh, two weeks in, in, together in India with another friend, and uh, that was probably the most crazy adventure that we ever did together. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, you mentioned Tibet a little bit. Do you mostly, do you as a Buddhist most closely identify with the traditions of Tibetan Buddhism? Yes, I do because when I started to be interested in, in Buddhism, it was in 1989 and then in the 90s a bit more and then it grew. Uh, however, the the main factor for me to have interest in Buddhism was His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he just at the time got the Peace Nobel Prize, and I was so inspired by his acceptance speech that um, I certainly was very curious about who he was, what he represented, what Buddhism was, and therefore. He was basically through book my first influence slash teacher, and uh, and I put a lot of effort into studying Vajranaya, and uh, not so much um, learning from the Theravada tradition or uh, Zen tradition, and then when I did have some interest in Zen tradition. I was a little bit confused. So I went back to Vajranaya, and, which is, uh, as you know, part of the Mahayana tradition. Yes, absolutely. So that's kind of like your, where you feel the most comfortable over the last 30 years of practice. Yes. Excellent. And, and uh, I feel comfortable, and also it's something that I like very much. I like the, the tantric aspect of it, of the teaching, that you don't find necessarily in Zen Buddhism. And uh, it, it's something that is basically uh, very appealing to me, al almost like tailored to to what I I like in terms of um, style of studying and learning, and uh, in in it's in in sync with my beliefs. Excellent. Okay, so as we were talking about a little bit 
off air um just a few minutes ago off air you have a very hectic life and not only are you like a, an entrepreneur and a traveler but you also have a committed buddhist practice so as such a as a person who lives such a hectic life i'd love to know a little bit about what your buddhist practice looks like on any given day like do you have any routines that you need to do in order to feel okay about the state of your spiritual practice sure uh, hectic life, I don't know if it's hectic. It's a busy life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hectic is when it's chaotic. Uh, busy is when it's organized chaos, I guess. Oh, good. Um, so I, I like, to, I like to, make, <laughs> to make that distinction in between hectic and, and, and busy. Um, but yes, I have a, a routine, of course. Uh, I wake up early. I wake up at six, in between six and seven on the morning. I have my coffee, and then after that, I go to my meditation room, and I have some rituals. Then I recit recitate mantras. Then I do offerings. Of course, I take refuge in the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Um, that's the first thing I do in the morning. But after that, uh, I do what I just described. And then um, after the meditation, I uh, study a little bit every day by reading books, by um, listening to some teachings. And then once a week, I have the luck to have uh, a dear Dharma friend who doesn't want me to call him his teacher because he's too humble, <laughs> uh, but he's, uh, he's a geshe, which means he has a, he has a doctor in, in Buddhist th uh, theology. And he's Nepalese and Tibetan, and his name is Tashi, so it's Geshe Tashi, who comes every Thursday to my house. And we have um, two hours of, of teaching and learning for me from, from, from him. And, and that's very helpful. When I'm done with all that, um, I come to work and I make sure that I don't take transportation and Therefore, I walk through Central Park, and it's basically um, another kind of loose meditation. It's not, it's not like a walking meditation that Zen, Zen um, practice will, will recommend, but it's close to that. Yeah, I love following your Instagram posts as well because you're really regular about frequently posting photos of your walks to work every day in Central Park. And it's really beautiful to watch the seasons change and see your mood in the photos. Like I can tell that you're in a really good place when you're walking to work every day. Oh, for sure. And also, you know, to be in contact with nature, it's it's very powerful. And uh, you very much, it's a very great exercise of mindfulness because you're really in the present of what's happening uh, with the rhythm of nature. Do you struggle at all with gaps in your practice or lapsing due to your busy schedule? Well, if I could, I would practice much more and I would meditate much more. Um, but I think I, I'm I'm fine I'm, I'm pretty content with the, the schedule and rhythm that i have the challenges are when i'm traveling it's very difficult uh, in between sometimes being jet lag sometimes being on a different um, lifestyle than when i am at home uh, it, traveling for me is, is definitely where i struggle the most to practice uh, or, or to study 
like I like to do at home. Meditation for me is very difficult in a plane. I know a lot of a lot of my friends love being in a plane and meditate. It's for me, as soon as I walk into a plane, I sleep, so it's not good. <laughs> gotcha. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your traveling and adventures. I want to specifically talk about an episode of Avic Eric that I really enjoyed recently. And I'd love to discuss your experience documented in the episode when you spent time learning about temple food at Bakyung Sa Buddhist Temple in Korea. Yes. Why did you pick this particular temple for filming this episode of Avic Eric? We were we were scouting the country and looking at many temples and and they are a lot of them, some of them very small and others pretty big with few hundreds or sometimes thousand monks in it, and we liked um, that one because it was the monks on one side and it was a beautiful surrounding and then it was this small hermitage like five minutes walk from, from the monks where few nuns were living and uh, John Kwan, who ends up in, in the episode, is uh, the head nun of that uh, hermitage and she's she's in charge of uh, cooking and, and teaching temple food. Excellent. Um, I love the episode and um, Jean Quan, her, her methods are really fascinating. What do you as a chef most admire about the monastic food preparation that you learned about? Many things. First of all, I mean, for John Quan, it's, of course, he's feeding people, but it's a, it's a practice. Everything is a practice in a process from cultivating the plants uh, in the garden. And in those monasteries, especially in Korea, it's very important for the monks to be involved with not only the cooking aspect, but also planting the seeds, cultivating the garden, be in, uh, in constant relationship with the plants. And um, then they, they, of course, uh, cook its vegan uh, diet. And uh, uh, it's a meditation during the process. It's a meditation when you eat as well. And a, a lot of rituals are linked to the process of uh, eating the, the food that has been prepared. So I like all of that. And it's, I find it fascinating. And it's something that is absolutely entirely sustainable uh, in, a, in a point of view of respecting the planet. Uh, of course, avoiding suffering for animals and, um, and sustainable because they feed themselves with their own resource. Yeah, and you know, another lesson that I took away from the episode is when you say temple food not only nourishes the body, but it also purifies the mind. So um, what were some of the biggest lessons that like you took away from your experience with Zhang Quan and her temple food? Is it all about it? Like um, you could elaborate as well if you wanted to on like um, you just mentioned the benefits of the planet. But what were some of your biggest takeaways from the experience in its total? It's massive to take away. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it was the first time I was exposed to temple food. And I was fascinated by the idea of planting the seeds, working the soil, being one 
basically with the universe and being so mindful of the life of the insects and animals uh, that are interacting with the garden. For instance, when they harvest anything, they make sure that there's no insects on the leaves or on the vegetables. They let the wild boar come to the garden and eat part of the garden. They share everything with the surrounding. That was, to me, an eye-opener. I was like, wow, they are mm. so careful, mindful, and compassionate in the process of doing that. Then, of course, um, they use traditional techniques to, and, and techniques that I didn't know that, that I learned there, but just domesticating the fire, making sure that you don't burn too much wood, you are cautious with the amount of trees that are being cut, um, that you are in constant relationship with that fire was also something fascinating to me because in a Western world, especially in urban centers and, and in professional kitchens, we basically turn a button or push a button and then the heat comes either way uh, through uh, electricity or gas. This is something that is very important and, and again, a great mindfulness exercise. Then what was fascinating was how good the food was. Mm, yes. And how, how pure and powerful the flavor were. And at the same time, same time, what was very interesting was how I felt after eating. Your mind is very clear. Um, it's this, the food that they provide help them to be very, very focused in their meditation and practices to sleep extremely well when it's needed and to be very healthy. And I will give you an example that is fascinating to me is that, for instance, at the end of the summer, beginning of the, of the fall, they harvest or they have harvested a lot of vegetables and, and leaves and, and so on that, has, that have been in contact with the sun. And therefore, the energy of the sun has penetrated, has penetrated those, those ingredients and they preserve them if they have to for the winter. But then when it's extremely cold weather uh, in that region, they are eating those ingredients that are basically not only delicious, but are medicinal. And the energy of the sun prevents them from getting the cold, mm. which, which is, sounds logical, right? And I think we have lost this awareness about eating and and the relationship with the seasons and uh, and the elements that can help us to have a meaningful diet in terms of again awareness and and health I agree you know and what's interesting about the episode is immediately after I watched your episode with Jean Quan I was in my kitchen cooking food and I'm cracking open cans of diced tomatoes and things like that and it was coming out of cans, and I couldn't help but think about the stark contrast that I had just seen within your episode and the lifestyle of Jean Quan in the temple. So it was just a moment where I had to, you know, I took away a lesson from that, thinking about the distinctions and the way that we appreciate and think about food around the world. It was just a powerful, beautiful moment for me. Yeah, it's very powerful. And also for, 
for the person who's cooking to feed others, it's an amazing practice, practice of generosity and practice of compassion, of course. Thinking and, of, yeah. And, and, the, and, and it's a daily practice for them. Um, so it's, it's, it's really a, a lifestyle attached to the, to the temple food that is very powerful and is their practice. Yeah, and Zheng Quan thanks the food in the episode. And in the West, there seems to be sometimes like there are prayers before meals, but thanks um, are often to like the Lord and not to the food itself. Do you think that Westerners could learn a little bit about gratitude to food based on the episode that you put out for Avik Eric? Definitely, yes. Most of the Westerners who are thanking the Lord are, are very often... Um, Christians or, or Muslims or, or Jewish, so therefore they believe in one God. Right. Um, I do not see too many Buddhist people thanking the Lord, but they thank basically the universe. And, and very often I see them uh, paying homage and, and are grateful to the ingredients that are presented to them, uh, if, even if it's um, vegetables or vegetarian or vegan or, or using animal, they are very grateful to the, either way, the life of the animal that has been uh, sacrificed for the meal and very thankful for the plants for letting them be harvested. And, and actually, John Kwan in her garden thanked the plants when she harvests the plants and then she thanks them again when she's cooking and she thanks them again when she's eating. So some of the things you were just talking about like bring up ethics within Buddhism and something that springs to mind is your uh, connection to the Eightfold Path as a restaurateur, as a chef. And I want to talk about a couple of issues on which I am like genuinely undecided. So I'm a high school teacher and I have had past students point out the tension that might exist for Buddhist chefs and restaurateurs who serve meat or alcohol and in relation to the Eightfold Path of right livelihood, right intention. And I read an interview with you in Tricycle in 2010 where you wrestled with this dilemma. Um, have you made any progress on your views with regards to right livelihood and serving meat and things like that? Yes, I have made some progress. I am more conflicted than ever. Right, yeah. No, it's it's confusing. <laughs> it's confusing. Now, let's start with the, the easy one, the sure. alcohol, right? So, restaurants, restaurateurs, bartenders, uh, nightclubs, uh, and people who operate those, those um, uh, outlets, and even people who are producing alcohol at, at the source, which means winemakers and, and people creating alcohols and so on, um, they have a right livelihood, most of them. In Buddhism, we said, do not get intoxicated. Buddhism doesn't say, do not drink. And uh, when you are, are a restaurateur or a bartender and you're serving clients, you are not responsible for their decisions. They are free to 
take the alcohol and drink it moderately and have an experience, or it's their decision to um, not be moderate and and do something that is stupid, which is to get drunk and intoxicated. Now, the intention is very important in Buddhism, as, right. as you know. Yeah. If your intention is to get your client drunk and to make a lot of money from it, <laughs> therefore you're doing something wrong. If your t- intention is to complete the ex- a certain experience um, and and to make sure that your client is not smashed at the end of the experience, you do. I don't think you're doing something that is is wrong. Again, it's about the intention. A doctor who gives medicine to someone doesn't know if the person is going to overdose from the medicine. If his intention is to give medicine, we, we can take a topic that is very hot right now, right? Painkiller. Yeah. If a doctor gives a certain painkiller to a patient and in his mind is to um, mislead the patient and to be greedy and make money from that product, Therefore, it's bad. If the intention of the doctor is to alleviate the pain from that patient and try to do the right thing for his patient, is a good thing. And now, when you talk about the patient, if the intention of the patient is to take many, as many painkillers as he can and as many times as he can to be intoxicated, then it's wrong. But if the patient is taking the prescription the right way, and and it's beneficial for him. So it's the same thing with the, with the alcohol that is being served. Bars and, and restaurateurs and bartenders and restaurateurs and operators in a, in a food and hospitality industry very often do not let their clients um, drink too much. At, at the restaurant, when we see someone being um, alcoholized or, or starting to to be uh, drunk, we stop serving alcohol. We do, do not push the client to to go too far. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, a story springs to mind. I had back surgery a few years ago, and my doctor was extremely ethical and careful with regards to giving me a full description of the warnings about the drugs that he was giving me during my recovery period. So his intention was absolutely clear with me as uh, as my doctor and as my caretaker yes and, and also you know you have some very uh, pure minds like monks who drink alcohol yeah. in different traditions including in buddhism if, if you go to japan they, they drink alcohol in tantra they sometimes they drink alcohol however you if you see a monk drunk, is something wrong, obviously. But, but again, it's about the intentions and it's about um, being in control yourself. And nobody can do that for yourself. So how do you feel about meat then? Well, the, Le Bernardin specializes in seafood, so we don't serve too much meat. However, I'm always very, very concerned about the suffering of the animals. And it's something that I'm really struggling with. Um, I started to be a chef before I became a Buddhist and I never thought about the animal suffering on the beginning of 
my career. And even when I started to become a Buddhist, I never thought about the suffering of the animals. And even today, I myself eat a diet that is not vegan or nor vegetarian. I eat um, meat and, and, and fish. I eat more vegetables, for sure. And uh, I'm inspired to to help to to help animals to suffer less. But um, the reality is that even if I was saying, okay, Le Bernardin is becoming a vegan restaurant and try to inspire people, what will happen today is that Le Bernardin will close because it's not enough support from the clients and it will not make any difference in the world because it will be one less restaurant. I think our society and and the way we are living our life, it's it's not evolved and we are not ready yet to make the drastic change to switch our diet from uh, animal protein to simply uh, um, a vegan diet like, like in, in temple food. And even vegan people uh, very often cannot sustain that diet because their 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 DNA doesn't doesn't allow them to be healthy. Uh, a great example is Solines the Dalai Lama tried many many times to go on a vegan diet, and his doctor um, had to take care of him because he was getting sick, and they recommended to him to have some some meat. So again, to feed people for their pleasure animals that have suffered. It's something that I struggle with when I have tremendous compassion for those animals that have died for us. And very often when I, when I see um, the products in a restaurant, I make a prayer and um, I light candles every year for the, every year and, and every day for the suffering of the animals. But I'm, I'm torn. I don't know what to do um, until until I I potentially close the restaurant. Yeah. Am I am I going to? Uh, we have 175 employees. Am I going to close the restaurant and have 175 employees losing their jobs? Um, some entire communities of fishermen live from catching fish. Are we going to uh, stop that? I, yes, we can, of course, but it's, um, it's it's very difficult today to do that. Yeah. You know, and I, recently I read your book, 32 Yokes, your autobiography, and through uh, something that struck me is I'm thinking about you running your restaurant and the way that you manage your restaurant and your staff. Um, I was really touched by everything you just said about caring for your employees. And Throughout your younger years, you write in the book in great detail about how you struggled with some some anger, and I'm curious if Buddhism really plays a role in your management style in your restaurant to keep your employees happy, to keep yourself um, happy and content, and how those two worlds mix. Like, How does Buddhism influence your management of Le Bernardin? Sure. Um, now, um, 
54 years old, but when I was young, I was a young chef with a bad temper. And I was educated in kitchens where chefs were very angry at their staff and very abusive, verbally mostly, but sometimes physically by beating them, kicking them in the butt, uh, punching them in the shoulders, throwing plates and so on. And when I started my career, I was basically emulating um, some of my mentors. And I realized that I was miserable in my life. People around me were were miserable and we were not productive what we were doing was just, we were suffering from anger or from the consequences of, of anger. And one day I was home reflecting on, on my misery and the misery of the company and I realized that ultimately it was coming from me, from my negative attitude toward the staff. And I changed that, not overnight because it takes time, but I changed that through practice. and. The way I bring what I learn in Buddhism to the restaurant or in my life when I share with people, it's in a, in a secular way. I'm not trying to convert anyone to Buddhism. I'm not trying to uh, even talk about Buddhism with them. What I try to do is to take the universal values of Buddhism and apply them at the restaurant. For instance, I will say, uh, treat others the way you want to be treated. And that resonates in the mind of many people, actually even in the Bible. Um, and I think it's, it's where you have the most success is when you don't talk about religion, when you don't talk about um, your practice, but when you, when you lead by example and when you are saying things that are secular but make total sense and when we have meetings and and you say to your staff we have to try to make our environment the best for us to blossom and have young people be inspired and so on this is a message that is secular but ultimately for me the influence comes from buddhism I was curious about the absence of Buddhism in 32 Yokes. Like you mentioned Shunryu Suzuki Roshi and you mentioned Tibet, but only very briefly within the final few pages. Um, was there a reason that you omitted a lot of Buddhism from the autobiography? Yes, because I was not exposed to Buddhism. I didn't know what it was. Mm. Uh, my family my family is, is Catholic. I was baptized. And then I went to Catholic school. I had a bad experience. Um but that experience didn't really uh, push me into Buddhism. I was not, just not satisfied with uh, the, dogma, the dogma of the Christianism. And I'm not judgmental here. A lot of people um, accept the dogma and, and, and that religion is, uh, has a lot of positive um, influence on those people. But for me, it, it, it didn't work. I didn't understand the logic of that religion, religion, and I was struggling with it. And I can give you an example. I didn't understand Adam and Eve and the snake and the apple. And sure. <laughs> to me, it didn't make any sense. Uh, therefore, I was conflicted and I, 
I was looking for guidance, spiritual guidance, unconsciously and consciently. And until I, until the end of my book, which is when I'm leaving France and it's the, my last few minutes in France before I board to, uh, the plane to come to America, I have no idea what, what Buddhism is. I have no idea who the Dalai Lama is. I'm going to discover that uh, in the plane. And when I land in America, it's when I'm really discovering uh, Buddhism. Excellent. I'm curious about a method of cooking or a dish that you never would have found had you not become a Buddhist. Like, have there been any practical applications into your craft that Buddhism made possible? Well, it's not necessarily in one dish, but it's more powerful than that. For instance, at Le Bernardin, as I mentioned previously, I struggle with the suffering of the animals that we serve. Last year, we decided to have a testing menu that is vegan. Mm. And we put a lot of effort into the creativity of this menu. And, and we, of course, update this menu with the seasons and so on. And uh, people can come today to Le Bernardin and have a vegetarian or vegan experience and be with their friends who are uh, eating fish or, or meat if they wish. So this influence, I mean, this decision was influenced by Buddhism. I'm working right as we speak. I'm, I'm looking at the board right now in, in the conference room where we are working on a vegetarian book. It's going to be called Vegetable Simple or Vegetarian Simple. But that book will be ready in uh, 2020. And I'm working on this book because of Buddhism yes. uh, influence. I want, I want to use all my talent and the talent of the team and our creativity uh, to create recipes that are simple, uh, that are inspirational, and that are delicious, ultimately, for people to cook more vegetables. So therefore, Buddhism had an influence, and has an influence today in my career, more and more and more. Probably one day, when I'll be ready, I will open a vegetarian restaurant. And... and uh, uh, it's not tomorrow, but in a few years from now, I totally see myself being um, involved in, some, in, in such a project or even create a, a wellness center where people could come and rejuvenate or rest and, and make some retreats and so on. That will be not a Buddhist center, but a secular, a secular environment that allow people to to be exposed to, again, uh, more or less the same experience that I had in, in temples myself, but without going to a temple and without being converted to Buddhism. Excellent. So as you look down the next few decades of your life, um, what are some of your goals for the next couple of decades with regards to Buddhism? What are you still hoping to achieve within your own practice well it's very simple wisdom of emptiness which brings to enlightenment and it is for the benefits of all sentient beings 
That's the Mahayana practice. That's the Vajrayana practice. All the efforts that I'm making, uh, all the learning experience, everything that I'm, I'm gaining from from the masters that have passed the teaching, uh, ultimately the, to myself, uh, I'm trying to use that to make a difference in the world and to be a, a better human being um, and to have an impact on the community as much as I can. A positive impact, obviously. The intention is to help every sentient beings until we finally can, all of us, leave samsara and attain nirvana. And samsara and nirvana, it's not two worlds that are esoterical. They are anchored in our consciousness. It's a switch of consciousness. Nirvana is when you attain wisdom of emptiness. Uh, and, and suddenly you want to leave the state of being in a samsara. Could you see yourself doing a follow-up to 32 Yokes that has more Buddhism within the chapters? Could you see yourself doing a follow-up? Not at this point. Okay. <laughs> well, and I do. I really do look forward to checking out your vegetarian cookbook as well that you're working on because that's primarily what I cook at home. So that is something that will immediately impact my own practice with my wife and my daughter in my own house. So I will be watching for that. It's coming uh, in the spring 2020. In a year from now, it will be uh, available. And I'm very happy that you will be potentially inspired to to cook some of the recipes. Excellent. Well, Chef Eric Repair, I am very grateful to you for taking some time out of your schedule today. Um, I know that you're at work and things are happening as we speak. So um, thank you so much for being here and talking to me on Classical Ideas about the intersection of food and Buddhism. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be on uh, on your podcast and uh, and grateful as well. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to express myself. Appreciate very much. Thank you. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.